Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. I'm just going to jump right into uh, the sermon today. We got a, we've got a lot to cover. We're in the third week of this study in the book of Job, and uh, I want to give you just, again, a little bit of review. We'll do this for a few weeks. We won't do this for every week, but just a little bit of review of the context, the story of Job, the background, so that we kind of are all on the same page. Book of Job is part of what's called wisdom literature in the Bible. Psalms is a part of wisdom literature. Proverbs is a part of wisdom literature. There's other books that are a part of that. And Job specifically is about helping the people of God live wisely in a world where we oftentimes uh, deal with really, really difficult and hard stuff. And rather than providing simplistic answers, the book of Job enters into our pain, into our questions, into our doubt, uh, into our anger, into our hurt, into our loss. It enters into all of that and it invites us to trust the God who weeps with those who weep, the God who is able to redeem absolutely anything that we give to him. Just a little bit of context again about Job. Job had, was a guy who had everything going for him. He was a man of God. He had a big family. He was wealthy. He had incredible influence. And then in an instant, his life falls apart and he endures wave after wave after wave of really awful, awful stuff. He loses all of his wealth his family loses his family. His family is killed. And then on top of everything else, Job's own health begins to fail. Now, there's nothing more certain than that you and I are going to face really difficult circumstances in life. Maybe not Job-level stuff. I hope you never face Job-level stuff. I hope I never face Job-level stuff. Maybe not that, but stuff that you don't expect, things that you don't plan for, could be health stuff, stuff, it could be the loss of a loved one, it could be some kind of disaster, it could be the loss of a job, it could be relational crisis, it could be a financial crisis, it could be some profound disappointment, it could be some violence that you experience, any number of things. And when we suffer, or when someone we love suffers, it's just natural to ask the question, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why them? Why the people that I care about? Like, why? How can an all-powerful, good God allow this to happen? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. Where is God in the midst of all of this? And as we've mentioned every week, if you read the book of Job hoping to find the answer to why, the definitive answer to why you will be incredibly disappointed because the book of Job is not really focused on answering the question of why people suffer or why good people suffer or why I am suffering or why the people that I love are suffering or how do I avoid suffering or how can the people that I love avoid suffering. The book of Job is actually focused on another question and that is the question, how do I suffer well? How do I go through what I'm going through in a way that recognizes God's presence in my life and recognizes God's activity in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the hardship? 
And as we mentioned the first week, and Jess talked about it last week, Job consists of three main dialogues. If you take all the chapters of Job, you can divide it into three main sections. The first one's very short. It's the dialogue that takes place between God and Satan. It's the one we talked about the first week. The next one is one that takes up the majority of the book. It's the dialogue that takes place between Job and his friends in quotation mark because they are horrible friends who say all the wrong things. And Jess did a great job last week helping to unpack all of that. Now, she dealt with just the very first part of that. There's actually this, there's this dialogue that goes on throughout the book where Job's friends talk and then Job replies. Job's friends talk and then Job replies. Job's friends talk and then Job replies. And that's the majority of the book is that dialogue going back and forth. And then there is a, a section at the end where God addresses Job. And you kind of see where all of this is going. Those are the three main sections. And today we're looking at a section in the middle of the book in this back and forth that takes place between Job and his friends. And specifically, we're looking at chapters 13 and 14. And we're focusing on what Job's response is to the things that his friends are saying. Now, again, this is a conversation that kind of goes back and forth. And basically, no matter the verbiage that his friends use, basically his friends are saying to Job the same thing. They're saying that his suffering is because of something that he's done. This is the penalty, uh, the punishment for his sin. Uh, Job's getting exactly what he deserves from God. That basically is the message of the friends. And basically he needs to repent, admit his wrongdoing, and everything will be fine. If he can just admit his wrongdoing, admit that this is being caused by something that he has done or something that he has said, then everything will be fine. And as chapter 13 opens, this is what Job says to his friends. He says, my eyes have seen all of this. In other words, everything that you're observing about God and life and suffering and all that, I, I see it as well. Like I observed the same thing. My ears have heard and they understood. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, Job says. In other words, I, 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 the, the theological stuff that you know, I know that. The stuff that you know about God and, and, and how God works, like I know that. I know all the theological stuff. I know all the answers. I know all the biblical texts. Like I know all of that. I'm not inferior to you. I don't take a back seat to you. You're not telling me stuff like that I don't know. You, however, <laughs> smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent, for you that would be wisdom. You, you, you get what he's saying, right? He's saying if you would just shut up, you would sound a lot smarter than when you talk. Like, do you know how do you know, how you know that you're, you're not so smart? Is that your lips move. That's what Job is saying to them. Say, so you, you would just be better off to just be quiet. Just don't say anything. You would look way smarter. You would look like a much wiser person. 
In other words, Job is saying, you are not the only ones who have an understanding of God. Like, I know that God is just. I know that there is a penalty for sin. I know that. But that's not what's going on here. And then Job compares his three friends to physicians, docs, surgeons who don't know what they're doing. It's like he's saying, you are eye doctors uh, trying to do open heart surgery. Like you don't have the faintest clue what you are doing. Now, here's the thing about his friends. Many of their ideas about God are true. They just don't apply in Job's situation. They are right in saying that God is just. They are right in saying that there is a penalty for sin. But they are wrong in assuming that Job's suffering was a punishment for sin. They, they took something that was true and they wrongly applied it. The truth they were proclaiming didn't fit the reality of the circumstances. The truth that they were proclaiming that was true didn't fit the situation that they were applying it to. And we have to be so careful not to do the same thing. That sometimes we can make a statement or we can quote a verse that is absolutely true. The statement that we may say is absolutely true. The, the Bible verse that we are quoting, it's the word of God. It's absolutely true. But sometimes we may say something that is true or we may uh, uh, give a scripture to someone that is absolutely true, but it, but it simply does not fit the reality of what they are going through. It does not fit their situation. It does not fit their circumstances. Uh, the, the nuance is not there. The, the wisdom is not there. You know, there's lots of ways to define wisdom, but one of the ways to define wisdom is that it is truth rightly applied <laughs> to the right situation. So you can have truth and not apply it to the right situation, which is what Job's friends are doing. Lots of truth, just not applied correctly to that particular situation. And we have to be careful as we handle the word of God, as we speak God's truth, that it's not just that we are speaking truth, but that we are speaking truth wisely. We are applying God's truth in, a, in the right way to the circumstances that, that fit that particular statement of truth. Job's other complaint against his friends is that they are speaking wickedly on God's behalf. They're speaking on God's behalf, but they're speaking wickedly on God's behalf. Look at what he says in verse six. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Job is saying that his friends are, are bearing false witness against him. They are accusing him of wrongdoing on behalf of God. 
that Job's friends believe that they have taken God's side in all of this and that they're actually speaking for God in what they're saying. So what he's pointing out and what Job's friends in fact are doing is they're not saying, hey, this is what we think or this is our assessment of the situation. They are saying, this is God's assessment of the situation. They are speaking for God. They are not accusing Job. They are saying, God is accusing you. They are speaking words of accusation on behalf of And Job is saying that his friends are bearing false witness against him. Job is saying, you are speaking wickedly on God's behalf. In other words, you are putting words in God's mouth about me that are not true. Job is painting um, a picture, that kind of the whole picture that Job paints is of a courtroom, right? Job is painting a picture of a courtroom scene where his friends are giving false testimony. But they're not giving false testimony to God because they're not the ones on trial. And they're not giving false testimony about God because their theology is actually pretty good. What they're doing is giving false testimony on behalf of God. They are presuming to speak for God in what they are saying. They are saying, this is God's testimony about Job and his sin. And Job calls them out on it. And eventually, if you've you've read through the book of Job, uh, you know that when you get to the end of Job in chapter 42, that God calls them out on it as well. That's God's indictment against Job's friends that we read about in Job 42, seven where God accuses the friends of not speaking that which was verifiable or that which was right on his behalf. And we have to be really careful again when we try to speak on behalf of God, especially when we're talking with someone who's going through really difficult stuff, like really painful stuff. When we say things like, this is why this is happening, or this is what God is trying to teach you through all of this, or God told me to tell you, we are giving testimony on behalf of God. And the danger in that is that just like Job's friends, we will give false testimony on God's behalf. In our desire to be helpful, and it's almost always in a desire to be helpful. I'm genuinely convinced that Job's friends really actually did want to be helpful. Like they didn't gather with him and sit with him in silence for seven days and, and be present with him and engage him. I don't think saying, how can we, how can we go and say the, the most hurtful things that we could possibly say. I think they are intending, their desire is to help. But sometimes, even when our desire is to be helpful, we actually do something that Job describes as wicked. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well then, well, what, 
should I say? Especially for someone who's going through challenging situations, difficult times, like what should I say? How do I reflect Christ when I'm engaging people who are suffering in some way? And I would just refer you to last week's message because I thought that Jess and Kathleen in the conversation that they had did an incredible job of talking about in very, very practical ways like these are the ways that we can communicate when folks that we care about are going through difficult times. And Kathleen um, is the person on our staff that God has just gifted in some amazing ways with understanding how to walk through situations, difficult situations with people. So if you were not here last week and you didn't hear that, go listen to that message and take notes. If you uh, were here last week and you took notes, go back and review your notes again. And if you were here last last week and you didn't take notes, listen to it again and take notes this time. Because I think that what what Kathleen talked about and and Jess in that conversation is so super helpful to having kind of some practical understanding of how to communicate with folks in a Christ-centered way when they are going through difficult times. Now, as we continue to read in Job, we realize that Job's biggest desire is is to speak to God directly. Like that's, that's his desire through all of this. He, he says, but I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case, again, that courtroom kind of imagery, to argue my case with God. Keep silent, he says to his friends, keep silent, let me speak, then let come what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my own hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before God. Job's goal in speaking with God is not primarily about discovering why he is suffering. He wants to demonstrate that his plight cannot be explained by simply describing it as a penalty for his sin. That that just does not apply in this situation. Job's language in this section is is legal. Uh, it's, It's formal language. Job wants to make his case before God. But Job's desire is not to win a dispute with God. Job's desire is not to try to win a case, that the imagery that Job is painting is not that he's the defense attorney and God is the prosecutor and he's trying to win a case against the prosecutor. That's that's not what Job is trying to do. He's not trying to, to win a case with God. Job is trying to settle a disagreement. Job's goal is reconciliation with God, not victory over God which leads to this really famous passage that we read in verse 15, where Job says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Now, it's really interesting because there's different Bible translations um, 
give different versions of that particular verse and, and use different words, which is oftentimes the case when it comes to, to uh, Bible translations, to biblical commentators, all of that. In the NIV, the one that we just read, it says, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. In the RSV, in the Revised Standard Version, it says, behold, he will slay me, I have no hope. A little different tone uh, with that. One biblical commentator translates it, if he were to slay me, I would have no hope. And another biblical commentator translates it, yes, though he slay me, I will not wait in silence. Though he slay me, I will not wait in silence. So the question is like, basically it's that last word in, in the text that is kind of different depending on the translation. And the, the question is like, is the last word in that verse, does it describe hoping or does it describe waiting? And the answer is yes. Uh, because those who are suffering certainly hope that God will bring relief to their suffering. Anytime we're going through a painful situation, we, we hope that God is gonna bring relief to that difficult situation. Certainly Job is hoping that God will bring relief to his difficult situation, but hope always involves waiting. And not just passively waiting. Job is saying, I will not wait in silence. In other words, I will keep pursuing my audience with God. I will keep engaging God as I'm going through this. I will stay in relationship with God as I'm going through all of these difficult circumstances. I will keep expressing myself to God as I, as I face all of this stuff. I, I will not hold anything back, not even my lament. I will offer my lament to God in the midst of this difficult time. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture of what it means to hope in the midst of suffering. It is not just suffering in silence. It is not just passive hope. It is not just passively hoping that God is going to fix everything. Hope is taking action. Hope is staying actively engaged with God even when what is going on doesn't seem to make any sense to us. Hope is not just praying for heaven to come to earth. It's being an instrument that God is able to use to bring heaven to earth. And in Job's case, hoping is continuing to press for a court appearance with God, which is why the next thing he says is this, I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before God. Now, when Job talks about his deliverance, about his salvation, he's not talking about like a spiritual salvation the way that we would talk about putting your trust or putting your faith in Jesus. He has already put his trust in God. That's why he can't, as someone who trusts in God, he cannot believe that God is doing this to him. The salvation, the deliverance that Job is seeking is a vindication of his character. That's the, 
the salvation that he is talking about. As a person who trusts in God already, that God would vindicate him. And he thinks all of this has to happen before he dies. Because if it doesn't happen before he dies, then it can't happen. Because like everyone in the ancient world, Job believes that, yes, life continues after death, but it's kind of a dreary, nondescript experience that doesn't really offer a lot of hope. And as, as Job struggles with that, this is what he says in chapter 14. At least there is hope for a tree. Because if it's cut down, if a tree is cut down, it will sprout again. And its new shoots will, will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground. Its stump die in the soil. And yet at the scent of water, it will bud and it will put forth shoots like a plant. But man <laughs> dies and is laid low. He breathes his last breath and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. Just this sense of, for all practical purposes, this is it. And Job, in many respects, as he voices all of this, is just a product of his culture. That this is the view of the culture in which Job would have lived. But there's something in Job that down deep inside thinks that maybe there's something more. And he doesn't know exactly what it is, but he even mid-thought in this verse, even mid-thought, he begins to imagine. And there's this kind of shift that takes place in the verse where he begins to, to raise some possibilities. He begins to raise some really interesting questions. He says in verse 13, if only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed, if only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? Is it possible that he could live again? All the days of my hard service, service I will wait for my renewal to come. So Job says that, you know, trees can re-sprout and a glorious new life is reborn, but humans have, have no prospect for that. They're, they're more like a riverbed that simply dries up and is no more. But then he gets to verse 14 and he dares to wonder about the impossible. He dares to wonder about something that goes right in the face 
of his culture. Right in the face of the thinking of the majority of people of his day. When he makes that statement, if a man dies, is it possible? Maybe? Is it possible that he will live again? Now, given everything that Job has said up to this point, you, you would think that maybe this is just a rhetorical question, a cynical rhetorical question, and the implied answer is no. And yet, when you get to the end of that verse, this is what he says. Let me read it again. All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal, my restoration, my resurrection to come. It's interesting, the word wait that appears here is the same word that we talked about in chapter 13 and verse 15. But here, Job is waiting, not just in the midst of his suffering, Job is waiting for his renewal. When Job says, if someone dies, will he live again? He is unknowingly prophesying about the resurrection of Jesus. Job, Job didn't cognitively have all the facts. He, he, the, the story of Jesus of Nazareth hasn't played out yet. He doesn't know of Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't know about the resurrection. He doesn't cognitive, he's not cognitively aware of any of that. And yet there's something down deep inside of him that questions the finality of his painful situation. For Job, he's, he's come to this place of saying, it just can't be that life sucks and then you die. There has to be more than that. It just can't be that you struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle and, struggle and that's it. And then you die and that's all there is. There has to be something more than that. I don't really know what it is. I don't understand how it works. But I think restoration is coming. I think renewal is coming. I think something else is coming from what I am experiencing right now. When we endure suffering, we have this advantage, right, over Job. We know what Job could only kind of know down deep inside, we know, we know that the dead in Christ will rise. We know, we know that death does not have the final word. We know that. We know that the resurrection frees us to live victoriously, even in the midst of our struggles and hardships. We know that God wins. We know the end of the story. We know that the resurrection means that death has been defeated. Like we know all of that. But then finally you come to verses 15 through 17. Where Job makes another incredible declaration. He says, you will call and I will answer you. Talking to God. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps but not Keep track of my sin. My offenses, my sins, my offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sins. 
Job envisions a day when God will not keep track of his sin, when in fact God will cover over his sin. And some of you are thinking, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I thought Job's whole case was that he had no sin. I thought Job's desire to to get a face-to-face with God was because Job was proclaiming in some way that his life is righteously perfect, that he doesn't have anything that he struggled with, that he doesn't have any faults, that he doesn't have anything that, that is, is sinful in nature in his life. And if you think that is what Job is proclaiming, you have missed the point of the book of Job because that's not what Job is declaring in this book. Job is willing to admit that all along he's willing to admit that there is sin in his life. All along he is willing to admit that he is not a perfect person. All along he is willing to admit the need for forgiveness. He just rejects the notion that his sins are so egregious that his suffering was because of his sin. That his suffering is the punishment for his sin. Now Job is imagining a God who doesn't keep track of our sins. A God who shows mercy. Now Job is imagining a God who takes our sin and seals them in a bag and doesn't hold them against us. A God who extends grace. Now Job is imagining a God who covers over our sin. And the word cover over there refers to a a smearing of of a wall with like plaster or whitewashing it in some way so that whatever was there before is gone. A God who forgives our sin. Job is envisioning a future not where his fortune is restored. He is envisioning a future where his relationship with God is restored. So not only is Job unknowingly prophesying about the resurrection, Job is unknowingly prophesying about the cross. He's unknowingly prophesying about what God has done for us on the cross. Because he is describing everything that God has done for us on the cross. Because on the cross, God has shown us mercy. On the cross, God has extended to us grace. On the cross, God has offered us forgiveness of our sins. On the cross, God has restored our relationship with him. Can I get an amen for that? We're gonna end our our service today uh, by taking communion. And communion symbolizes uh, so many things. Uh, Communion symbolizes God's mercy. It symbolizes God's grace. It symbolizes God's forgiveness. It symbolizes God's love. It symbolizes God's sacrifice for us. It symbolizes life that has come out of death. But the thing that it all also symbolizes is the thing that Job is 
longing for here. It symbolizes the restoration of our relationship with God. That's what Job wants. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of really hard conversations with friends that don't really understand, Job is wanting to have his relationship with the God who he has put his trust in. He wants to have his relationship restored. Because suffering takes its toll. And the suffering that Job has gone through, even as a person who's described as a righteous man, it's taken its toll. The conversations with his friends have taken their toll. The pain, the suffering, the loss has taken its toll. And that's what suffering does. And I, I know that ultimately, when we go through difficult times, it can draw us closer to God. And ultimately, that's what we all desire. But if we were to be like really, really honest with each other, we would say that getting closer to God is not this kind of simple, linear thing that happens when we go through difficult stuff. Is that when we go through difficult stuff, it takes its toll. And it can distance us in our relationship with our Father. And it can make God feel like a million miles away, even though he's right here. And Job is saying, in the midst of everything that I'm going through, I just want to know that my relationship with God is restored. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.